0: Well, good morning. Awesome to see you guys here. Welcome to Northland and also online. And what a week last weekend was, Heinz, celebrating that first anniversary, of our vision weekend, engaging people to be fully alive. And if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go online and, and catch It's a great review of this vision that we believe that God has entrusted to us. And somebody asked me this morning, I heard that you preached all last week holding a football the entire time. I said, that's true. He so said, what was that about? And I said, you've got to watch it to find out. So. But we went back through in, in unpacking that vision, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. That's who we are. And if you're new with us, great time to be coming on board of Northland at this new season as we're embarking on a, a, a new year. And people have asked following up to that week, okay, how, what's that going to look like this year? And our, our, our staff leadership, we're talking about three areas focusing on and throughout our ministry, and that's energizing our gathered experiences, whether it's a large gathering, like this, or or smaller groups, house churches, galvanizing our connectedness is the second. And then also, why don't we bring these up on the screen? And then the third is mobilizing our local as well as our global impact and saying, it's not just about us, it's about us engaging this culture to be fully alive in Jesus. So, this weekend, very intentional, following up on last weekend, because all three of those happen in a lot of areas that you're seeing out in the foyer. If you were a little late for Pastor Nathan's uh, uh, video greeting and he walked us through, I've never seen somebody read that fast. I'm very impressed, he's always impressing me. But you're gonna be given a passport to our Connections weekend. So this weekend, next weekend, We're talking about, okay, this is what we're involved in. You got over 75 ministry opportunities out there to say, this is how we're engaging people. This is how we're gonna get going, doing this vision, being this vision. Thinking this vision living this vision and some of the things out out there have to do with the energized Some have to do with galvanized some have to do with mobilizing, but they're there and Every one of you you've got a particular wiring and experiences and a calling on your life You've got something to bring to the table here at Northland You've got something you do you, you don't, but uh, you, I'm kidding. <laughs> Every person here, we're Northam because we're us. We live in a consumeristic society where, you know what, are we, we're coming and watching. No, you're not coming and watching. We're coming and experiencing and then moving out from here to do our callings together. And the way that you engage people to be fully alive in Jesus is going to be a little different than the way you do. It'll be involving all three of these. So, this weekend, following up on the vision, a very important thing that I want you to be aware of, and this is a, an image that I want you to have in your mind as we, as we get motivated. This is a motivating tool right here. It's a harpoon now, it's not for me to poke you with, all right, and uh, get you going. It's actually to provide an image in your mind that I've had for a number of years. I first read the book when I was in a, a college literary class. Do you guys know, by the way, what month this is, August? You Know what happened 200 years ago this month, August 1st? Are you curious? Herman Melville was born in New York City. He ended up writing a little book. Anybody know the name of the book? Moby Dick. Moby Dick. Chapter 62 in Moby Dick is an amazing chapter. And you might wonder, why is it an amazing chapter? You might even want to ask me, why is chapter 62 in Moby Dick? So glad you asked. The title of the chapter is called The Dart, which in 19th century whaling language is a harpoon. The harpooner would throw his dart. And Melville actually was a harpooner on a whaling ship for a number of years, which is how he came to gain all the knowledge to write his novel, Moby Dick, about this giant whale. Well, where I got this harpoon was as a gift from some fellow pastors a number of years ago out in Colorado. We had been going through a book by a mentor of mine named Eugene Peterson talking about the pastor. And he brings up chapter 62 of Moby Dick, and to talk about particularly the pastor, but it actually applies to every one of this, but every one of us. But chapter 62 is about how can the harpooner best throw the dart and most effectively throw the dart. And in chapter 62, he brings up several reasons that the, the dart is not always efficiently thrown. Uh, back in that day and age, about f- five in 50 throws would be successful. So what would happen is this whaling vessel would go out, the big ship, and then they would have these smaller, uh, I don't want to say rowboats because that is, is too small. Don't want to say lifeboats, but similar, but there were smaller vessels that would have half a dozen, 15, 16 rowers, once they spotted a whale in the distance, they would send out some of these smaller vessels, and that smaller, that smaller rowboat would have at the helm the harpooner. And that harpooner would be involved in rowing and rowing along with everyone else, and then they would come up to the whale, he would turn, and this would be thrown, if it embedded itself in the whale skin, then it would, on trying to pull it out, it would turn sideways, and uh, this would unfurl, and then they would tie it to the boat and so forth. But what Melville did is he exposed something that was very helpful to the whaling industry in that uh, he revealed why there was such ineffective harpooning going on, and why only five out of 50, and bottom line, he was saying it is because the harpooners are exhausted and you're expecting them to turn around and be accurate. And he said, he, but however prolonged and exhausting the chase, the harpooner is expected to pull his oar, meanwhile, to the uttermost. He, indeed, he is expected to set an example of superhuman activity to the rest. And this is the reason that Eugene Peterson would bring this up regarding the pastor, because so often there are expectations along those lines of pastors place on themselves. And uh, he goes on to say, uh, Melville goes on to say, and what little, with little strength that remains after he's been rolling with everyone else, he's expected to pitch it somehow into the whale. No wonder there's such a lack of effectiveness. And then he concludes chapter 62 by saying this, In my long experience with various whalemen of more than one nation, they've convinced me that in the vast majority of failures in the fishery, it has not by any means been so much the speed of the whale as the before described exhaustion of the harpooner that has caused them. And get this, here we go. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness and not from out of toil. The harpooners of this world, let's go to the next slide. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness and not from out of toil. Idleness in in the 19th century is not what we think of. We think laziness when we are idleness. To them, idleness, better word would be stillness. And Peterson would bring that up and we as pastors talked about so often we put expectations of busyness on ourselves and it's there and people love for their pastor to be busy and then you're all exhausted and what are those primary things that have, that you're called to do but it's not just pastors it's you it's you you've got a dart you've got a dart you've got gifts you've got a calling no matter which side of the table you're standing on out there Some of you have discovered your dart, and it's in one of these particular ministries. Others of you are saying, I believe my dart to throw is in this area. And basically all those darts together comprise one big dart that That Northland is to throw this year in this dart of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus and we need to hurl it. But what Melville is telling us is we hurl that dart not out of frenzy but out of quiet stillness of waiting on Him and letting Him direct it. Letting Him energize us. Letting Him lead us. So we're going to spend two months on a passage of Scripture from Luke chapter 10, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, starting with verse 38. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screens, and if you don't own a Bible, by the way, you can uh, go back to the welcome desk and pick up one as our gift to you. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were some of Jesus' best friends. Some people think this is when He began meeting them. It was at the home of Martha. Something happened. Martha was throwing a dinner party. Jesus, the famous rabbi, is coming to town, and she's so excited, and she's moving around. She's doing all of this stuff. Our sister Mary, in the midst of all the preparations, makes a decision, a decision that Jesus affirms and a decision that has weaved its way through centuries and thousands of followers of Jesus to the doorstep of your heart and mind today and say, will we make a similar decision or not? And it's just a decision to be still and to calibrate. The most effective darts are thrown with a calibrated heart, a heart that's, that's stilled. I'm a, a backpacker and I love old time compasses and actually new time compasses. I just trust them more than a GPS because your batteries can go out and signals out. And to calibrate a compass when you're orienteering, you gotta get really still. Ships back in the same era that the whaling industry was going on to calibrate their compass, they would find a still Harbor to get very quiet and then get calibrated to true north Mary is saying I want you to calibrate my journey Jesus I want to sit at your feet let's take a look verse 38 Luke 10 as Jesus and his disciples were on their way he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said But Martha was distracted by all this other stuff. She's distracted from relating with Jesus. I know you don't have that problem, but you might have friends who've experienced this. All right. That was a joke. All right, let me just go ahead and say it. You do have that problem. There you go. But I'll tell you about the only person I know who has a deeper problem than you is me of getting distracted. And I start focusing more on hurling the dart than relating with the one who's called me to throw it. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and she asked, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? Those of us who have an active bent, we know this feeling. It's it's self-righteous. It's judgmental. We're we're working hard. Somebody else we feel like might not be carrying their load. And we get a little bitter. She says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus shocked her. Now, let me ask you this. Was Martha doing anything bad? No. It's a good thing. She's cooking dinner. She's getting everything ready to go. But Jesus says something very firmly to her, even though he says it gently. He says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and you're upset about many things. I don't know if you know what it looks like to be worried and upset, but you might have a friend who knows what that's like. Thank you. Ruth Haley Barton talks about the need for being still, and she said she had a a counselor one time tell her, Ruth, you… You got to get still long enough to let the. And he took a jar of river water. And earlier, when I prayed about sediment, this was on my mind. And he shook it up and it was all cloudy. And he said, You got to set this down long enough. Got to set down the worries and the distractions and being upset. Be still. So Martha's all churned up. And Mary decides to be still and let the sediment settle. And Jesus says, few things are needed, or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what is better and will not be taken away from her. Now, I don't want you to think that Martha, she gets a bum rap she's doing some good stuff. And a lot of us are Marthas. I have, I have a Martha bent. I, be I want to be active. I have a bias for action doing things. Yet this is a convicting passage. But notice Jesus says, Mary's chosen what is better. He doesn't say Mary has chosen what's best. Martin Buchanan says, he thinks one of the reasons Jesus said that is because really what's best is for there to be Mary and Martha going on at the same time. First you got Mary that calibrates and then Martha who throws the dart. But too often, we jump to this without first calibrating. We fire without aiming. And he says, Mary's made a decision. So we're calling this series Calibrate, sitting at the feet of Jesus. For you and your journey, for me and mine, for us and ours, as, as this movement that's, that's gaining momentum called Northland. In this new season, building on four decades of ministry, we've got a dart to throw of impact in our culture. But guys, for us to throw it, this dart of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus, we've got to learn the cadence of being still. That's a hard thing to do. I've got a lot of sins that nip at my heels, and one of my biggest sins as your pastor, though, is I'm busy. Busyness. And some of you would think, well, that's what we pay you for, to be busy. May God help us if that's our posture. Busyness, just for the sake of busyness, isn't the best thing in the world. And Jesus exposes that. And preparing for this and letting this passage seep through me has brought up tons of confession in my own journey. And so I'm journeying with you into a rhythm Getting a rhythm restored in my life, it's a rhythm that Jesus had. Uh, You know, we talk about engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus, and we talked about the ABCs of being fully alive. You guys remember those? Anybody get quizzed on the way home by your kids last week? All brokenness, creativity, depth, engagement, fellowship, generosity, heart, intimacy, journey. So many of those happen in stillness. They start there. They continue on when we're involved in the cadence of our lives, picking up steam, but all in depth and intimacy. Actually, I can make a case for every one of those having some roots in stillness. Look at the Jesus' cadence. You go through the Gospels, uh, anybody here think Jesus was ever not fully alive? He was always fully alive. Always. And fully alive is not always. Throwing the harpoon and doing what God's called us to do fully alive is often listening to Him direct us where to throw it. Mark one thirty-nine. very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where He got busy. No, where He prayed. Mark 6.31, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. Anybody ever here been so busy you didn't have a chance to eat? And there's something about America and we think, hmm, boy, I was good and busy today. I even forgot about eating. Maybe that's good, maybe not. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Mark 6, 46, after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. That's when he stilled the storm. Mark 14, 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I panic. (laughs) No, while I pray. He was sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane, and he calibrated. He said, I want to be still in your presence. Luke 4.42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place, and the people were looking for him. We would we, we, know, we love, love people looking for us and, and, and telling us we're valuable and telling us we're indispensable and you got to come back here. They tried to keep him from leaving them, and Jesus was being still. So Luke 6.12, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Psalm 37.7 says something. He says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. What we tend to do is we compare ourselves. Don't fret when men succeed in their ways, when they, you know, they carry out their wicked schemes. Uh, but the word wait there means the Hebrew word means to writhe. Means to wrestle. Means to twist. We are so ready to to throw our harpoon. And he he says, you need to coil up, be still, and let's get things calibrated so the right direction is honed in on. St. John of the Cross talked about stilling his house. Do you have a still house? Is the house of your heart still ever? Or do we wait up and then boom, 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 to-do list, to-do list. We do it, do it. Good things, yep, some good things happening. Some other things not so good, yep. But we're, th- we're constantly throwing our harpoons or attempting to and missing more often than we're hitting, and it's a matter of being still, and we miss it. You business folks, you know the whole deal. You spend a little bit more time in planning. The overall time for the task is cut down because you've taken time to aim. Same happens with a human being who's seeking to be fully alive in Jesus, that's taking the time to say, Jesus, what does fully alive look like? And there are those times that I calibrate and I say, how today will I I live with a sense of awe and steward my brokenness and walk in creativity and be a man of depth and engage other people with the gospel, walk in fellowship and be generous and live with heart and walk intimately and, and, and consciously engage with this journey of the entire creation, gaining a little bit more ground regarding the glory of the Lord, covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. That all needs to happen with me first pausing and saying, what's today going to look like? What's this next hour going to look like? So we're going to spend some time calibrating these couple of months. And it starts with being still. We'll talk about more of what we do at the feet of Jesus, but the first thing that happens is you've got to be still, because you can't be at the feet of Jesus and be still, because He's not going to run alongside our hecticness. So Mary stilled herself, and Jesus says, good job. So what's the benefit? What happens? Let me give you four quick ones. Stillness restores our souls. When we, stillness comes in and becomes part of our the cadence of our lives, it restores us. We get fragmented. The, the, there's a, a friend of mine had a plaque up on his, his wall. He's a counselor. He's also one of my. He's a coach of mine, but also a, a dear friend. And it's a, a Chinese pictograph of the Chinese word busy. And it's two symbols. The symbol on the, comprised of two symbols. The symbol on the left is the Chinese symbol for heart. The symbol on the right is actually a phonetic element. And by itself, that symbol on the right means to lose, to disappear, to perish, to flee, to have none as a result. What does busy mean? To see your heart flee to lose your heart, to see your heart diminished. And it's our hearts that we need to be fully alive. Yet busyness thins us out, and we cease to be fully alive even though we've never been pedaling faster, or and the treadmill is going, and we get busier and busier, and we think I can prove to everybody that I'm worth something, and we get busier and busier, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes along, and He says, stop! You know that big red button on a treadmill, when's the last time you hit it in your life? I thought about using that as a prop this weekend, but thought I'd get out of breath too quickly to be able to even preach. (laughs) Boom! Because typically what happens, it speeds up, and people come along, and they give to something else, and... They actually are reaching over into the treadmill and turning up the speed. And we like the accolades, so we turn it up. And meanwhile, Jesus is over there saying, stop button, hit it. Psalm 23, Michelle read a moment ago. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He gives me the option to lie down in green pastures. Oh, I'm sorry, I misread that. You know what, he, sooner or later, he'll make you lie down in a green pasture because he cares about your health. And, but it's better if we let him lead us beside quiet waters now because what happens is he restores our soul as a result. This is best thrown from a restored soul. Elijah, somebody I've been reading about, a great man of God, just spending some quiet in prayer. And he's burned out. You can read about it in 1 Kings 19. First thing God does is he sends him Uber Eats, and there's a unique vehicle that brings it. But if you don't know what it is, you can read about it. But so he feeds Elijah and gets him to rest. And then Elijah says, I need to be restored. I need you to speak. 1 Kings 19 verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in. The fire, but after the fire came a gentle whisper. God, I'm going, and you know what? I got things to do, and I'm going to throw this on the run, and hope you direct me. uh, to Speak to me, God. Speak to me about how to best hurl, how to best be fulfilled, how to best engage people to be fully alive, and would you talk loud enough so I can hear you over my rattle trap rhythms. And he says, be quiet. But God, I need... But I... I'm going to speak to you in a whisper, and you got to be still long enough to hear me. But I want to throw — you will, but you need to throw it in the right direction. Let me restore your soul. Stop killing your heart with busyness. The second benefit, blessing, result of being still. It's connected with what I was just talking about. It raises our perspective. Stillness raises our perspective to where we really need to be aiming this. You know, I've seen it in a number of places. It's it's an anonymous quote, but somebody says, most of us have a fear of failure. That's not what we should be afraid of. Our greatest fear should be of being successful at something that does not matter. Be afraid of that. Be afraid of taking this harpoon and missing what you're meant and called to be up to. Being still raises my perspective and and, and moves me from from that target that's off and maybe to — I shouldn't be pointing at anybody — that target that's on. A couple of years ago, Arlene and I with the boy, were out with the boys. We were out there for a family wedding. We took an afternoon and went to the Broad Museum of Contemporary Art there, there in Los Angeles. And uh, a gentleman named Art Thiessen has an amazing piece of art there. And it's, a, it's, a, it's all about perspective. And you look at it, and there's a table, and it's, I mean, it's just a fairly normal table, but it's will, very well-made. And you think, okay, I got the right perspective on it. I had Arlene take a photo of me when I got a little closer to it, though. <laughs> and all of a sudden, your understanding of that table is now different, isn't it? Because it's a matter of perspective. Psalm 46 verse 10 says, be still and know that I'm God and I'll be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. Be still, God says, and know something. Know that I'm God. Madeline Lingle, a phenomenal writer, says, I have a point of view and you have a point of view, but God has view. Your little slice of the pie is different than yours and yours, but we come before him and we say, God, I want to go beyond just my point of view. I want to get your perspective on this. And he says, my perspective in the midst of what you're dealing with is to know me and that I'm exalted and I'm enough. You've heard me talk about this before. What's the context of that verse in Psalm 46:10? Be still and know that I'm God and I'm exalted. You know what the that's verse 10 of Psalm 46. The context is earlier in the Psalm in verse 1 and 2 and 3. It says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Would you please hear the context in which God says, be still? We say, yeah, I'll be still uh, when I can just kind of get all my to-do list done. And finally, everything and all my circumstances just right. And then I'll have an opportunity to be still. He says, no. While, while the earth's giving way and the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea, though, while the waters are roaring and foaming and the mountains are quaking with their surging, Be still. But God, do you see all that's Be still. But the mountains are, be still. But my finances are, be still. But my son, be still. But my job, be still. My doctor, be still. William Cooper, phenomenal poet, wrote a poem called The Task. He says, you know what your task is? He writes this, a life all turbulence and noise may seem to him that leads it wise and to be praised." Man, that's describing us in 21st century America, isn't it? We think the busier we are, the more turbulent. We're wise to be praised. Oh, look at him. Look at her. She's busy. He wrote this in the 18th century. But wisdom is a pearl with most success sought in still waters. Be still. Restores our soul. It raises our perspective. It renews our strength, is a third benefit. When you get lost in the wilderness, when you're backpacking or hiking or whatever, the tendency is you get exhausted out of panic. And what you're supposed to do when you're lost is be still, reassess. Get a perspective, but also renewed, just as our bodies run out, so do our hearts. And what enables us to best hurl that dart is a a restored soul, is a perspective of aim, but also strength to do it. And it's not just physical strength, it's heart strength. Psalm 138 verse 3, on the day I called, you answered me and you increased my strength of soul. Love that. Isaiah 30 verse 15, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. Hmm. In quietness and trust is your strength. Exodus, by the way, the the passage finishes with some bad news. They wouldn't believe it, but you would have none of it. You said, no, 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 we'll flee on horses. We're going to get going. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, and therefore, God says, your pursuers will be swift as well. If you think on your own accord that you can outmaneuver this fallen world, think again because... The enemy who has already seduced you and all of creation, that we can be fully alive without God, he'll keep, keep lying to you. But if you still, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Be still and listen. To my spirit within you. Exodus 14 verse 13. Moser answered the people do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today will never, you'll never see again. And the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Hmm. Instead of running and trying to go faster sometimes. It's doing the counterintuitive thing, hitting the, the, the pause button on the treadmill and being still. Why? Because stillness restores my soul and I'm better able to throw this dart, not out of, idle, not out of exhaustion, but out of idleness, out of stillness. I best throw this dart out of stillness because I get, have a restored soul, because I have a raised perspective. I have thirdly restored strength. And fourth, benefit of stillness, renewed intimacy. It's in stillness that we can be intimate with Him. That's not the only time that stillness, that intimacy happens with the Father, but that's where it starts. You don't get intimate in a relationship by everybody being too busy for one another. I tell you what, one of the most dangerous phrases in church world is doing devotions. Got to do my devotions today. Man, I, 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 uh, husbands, try that out on, on your, your spouse. Hey, we got to do a date this week. Got to get, get it off my checklist. How about instead being, not just doing? John 17, 3, we've looked at it many times. If the heartbeat of fully alive is intimacy with the Father, Jesus defines eternal life. This is eternal life. If they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's at the heartbeat of him getting up early and spending the morning in prayer. Psalm 131, verse 1. The, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I've calmed... Listen to this. I've calm." and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. You know what a a, a weaned child is? It's a child that no longer needs to nurse, but still wants to be with his or her mother because they just want the relationship and the intimacy. I'm going to ask Danny and Josh to come out, and we're going to practice a little bit of what we're talking about. asked Danny to sing a song over you and really to you. You're gonna notice some scriptural resonance with what you're hearing. It's a song written by a guy named Isaac Slade, who's lead singer of The Fray from Colorado. It's a phenomenal song. Back in 2012, Arlene and the boys and I, right after these pastors gave me this, I went away for some sabbatical time and Arlene, the boys and I were in Europe. First time we've ever done a, a vacation in Europe. And the first night we were there, we received a phone call uh, from Colorado. Hey, house is broken out in the canyon above your home. Your neighborhood's being evacuated. A few of us are headed up to the house now. What's the garage code and what do you want us to take? And hundreds of people lost their homes in that fire. We did not. We thought we had. We made the difficult decision. I ended up coming back uh, from that vacation. We, in fact, we've, we've never been back again. That was the only time. And I had a couple of nights with the family, but we needed to come back because it was, a, it was a city crisis. And the family, we agreed on it and the city did. So we got back and there was this uh, a fundraiser at the arena, the, the Coliseum. In Colorado Springs for some, ce- ce- some ce- uh, celebrities and musicians, they were all performing and singing. And at dinner beforehand, about ten of us were at a friend's home, and Isaac was there. Isaac's a follower of Jesus, and uh, uh, his, his band's not a Christian band; it's phenomenal. They have a great m- r- reach in the, in rock music, and uh, but you can hear the tone of somebody who's fully alive that's doing his art, and. Uh, he said he was going to be singing this particular song, and he actually went over to the grand piano in this home and played it just for us. And then he sang it in front of, I don't know, 10, 15,000 people later that night. And he said it actually was a lullaby for his younger brother, Micah. As a teenager. Micah called in the middle of one night, about two in the morning, couldn't sleep, he'd been struggling in that way. The next morning, Isaac woke up and he thought, I'm going to encourage Micah. And he just woke up with this song and he wrote it down and you can hear Psalm 46 um, in it. I've asked Danny and, and Josh to sing it into you. We're about to have a meal together. In case you're wondering, does God even want to have anything to do with me? Because of my sin, is so great, the answer is that table that it reminds us of the cross. But before we go there, would you hear from your Father who says, I want to relate with you just because you're you, I love you, I love you. In the midst of whatever you're doing, I, I love you. Would you be still and know and be restored? and be loved.